Welcome to the Control the Room podcast, a series devoted to the exploration of facilitation and transformative leadership. Some leaders exert tight control and others are loose. To control the room means achieving outcomes while striking a balance between imposing and removing structure, asserting and distributing power, leaning in and leaning out, all in the service of having a truly transformative experience. Thanks so much for listening. If you'd like to join us live for a session sometime, you can join our facilitation lab. It's a free event to meet facilitators and explore new techniques so you can apply the things you learn in the podcast in real time with other facilitators. Sign up today at vulturecontrol.com slash facilitation dash lab. You can also learn more about our 12-week facilitation certification program at voltagecontrol.com. Today, I'm with Leanne Hughes at leannehughes.com, where she helps everyday people design fast and deliver strong without stress. She is also the author of the two-hour workshop Blueprint. Welcome to the show, Leanne. Douglas, it's always great to chat. Thanks so much for having me on the show. Absolutely. I've been really looking forward to this today. So as usual, I'd love to start with how you got your start in the world of facilitation and you know workshop blueprints and helping people deliver strong without stress. Like, How does someone get into this work? Well, it's just, I mean, scratching my own itch, really. I mean, I'm one of those chronic people that just will design and iterate and design and like even the five minutes leading up to a workshop do that. But in terms of the start of, of stepping up in front of a workshop room, I guess I'm probably the participant in a workshop that you'd always want to have in your group, like just super eager, on time, asking questions, nodding when things make sense. Just, I just love I just love being in workshops and I think it stems from um, as a kid, I used to play a sport in Australia called netball. Um, I don't know if many of your listeners have heard of that. It's kind of like a combination of basketball and European handball, but it dominated my life. Um, And actually, you know, so much so that I'm in my mid twenties and I'm still playing and I'm like, I've gone past the peak of being the athlete I was. I, and the only reason that kept me in the team was the group dynamics and the teamwork and the friendships and the ability to play with the team and, and be high performance. So I've always been sort of interested in that. Um, but fast forward a few years, I was living in a remote town in Australia, um, 2,000 kilometres away from the nearest capital city. So we're basically just locked off from the rest of Australia. And there are opportunities. Like we don't didn't have any facilitators in town and often we'd have to fly facilitators up from different Uh, capital cities to run sessions. And we had our local shire actually ask for a session on time management. I was working in a marketing role back then. And I thought, you know what, I think, I mean, I read a lot on this. I love talking and being in these groups. Maybe it's a chance to, to get up there and present. So that was the first opportunity. And Douglas, the run sheet that I had for that session, it was 901, show this slide, 903, uh, ask this question. It was just uh, yeah, I'm so glad I don't have that run sheet, but it's probably a good example of um, how far I've come in, t- in terms of running workshops. Yeah, that's so interesting when things get so overprogrammed, and it's quite often the mark of someone fresh and new and excited and wants to get it all right, but it actually can be a disservice. Absolutely. So back to the, the title of your podcast, Control the Room, like that's what I was I had to, I was so uncertain that I had to minimize the agenda. Yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting you came back to the title because there's different kinds of control. And there's some kinds of control where letting go actually gives us the real control. 
Like we're really in control at that point. Like everything's going to happen the way it needs to happen. Whereas if we try to exert too much control, then it, things get out of control. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's so true. And even um, when I think, when you talk about that first example of control, when I felt like I've relinquished it, it's interesting because even my body feels like it's actually really grounded. I'm really there. I'm like, I just feel that presence. Whereas at times where I'm kind of off my game, I feel like I'm floating above my head. Mm. I, I don't know. Have you felt that or is it just me being a bit weird here? <laughs> no, it's something that comes up quite often and that we talk about in our certification, which is this idea of being grounded and purpose and identifying purpose can be really helpful there. But also, you know, there's lots of things that might knock you off that grounding, right? Whether it's like an unruly participant or, you know, maybe the food didn't show up on time or whatever. And so I think, you know, it's very human to respond in those kinds of ways, right? And it's we had to learn how to move through those spaces in ways that allow us to return to that grounding. Because it's no such thing as being permanently just glued, right? That's not being human, right? But how do we stay in balance? When we get knocked off, how do we flow back in? Mm. Yeah, I really love that. And there's certain times that I don't know. And there's also like the, what people see of you projecting versus how, what you're feeling yourself. Mm. Like there was an example a few years ago. Um, I thought the day was going great. And I sort of checked in with a few people at lunch and they're like, Leanne, we're not talking about what we really need to talk about. <laughs> I was like, okay, what do I do after this break? And so, I mean, that definitely asked the group the question. We got into circles, but, you know, inside I was like that duck just like splashing around under underwater. I think the perception was I had this under control if people were to look at me. You know, and, and people have remarked on in terms of my facilitation style, they'll say, oh, you, you look so calm and measured. Honestly, Douglas, on the inside, it's anything but. So it's kind of interesting the contrast between the inner and the outer game. Yeah, absolutely. And that duck metaphor comes up quite often. You know, it's like, how do we keep everything calm and placid, even if we're doing a lot of moves underneath the hood? Yeah. And it's funny when you are under stress, you can't really think broadly in terms of all the opportunities or options that you have for that moment. Mm. You kind of narrow in on like, okay, what about this act? You know, like my mind is, it's almost like it's going through this uh, refidex of all the things I could possibly do, all the processes I could bring up, but I'm not, if I'm under stress, and so this is why I like having that outer game kind of slowing down the breathing, that helps me then relax and, and think more broadly in terms of what's most useful for this group and what questions can I ask to help us continue here and get their thoughts on next steps. Yeah, the other thing that I've found too is having the awareness and acknowledgement that as the facilitator, I don't have to have all the answers, nor should I. And being in that space and holding that role allows me to invite conversation that might need to happen. And one thing that can be done when things seem to be going off the rails is to label it, name it. Yes. Like what I'm noticing here is... And what do you think? What do you think we might do about that? Mm. And that, that can be a powerful thing. And let the group decide. Let them kind of weigh in. And I think my experience is that they respect you for it. I agree because you actually are naming it. And I think when we're talking about past Leanne, uh, yeah, I never would have been brave enough to even ask that question. And I thought you had to be the capable professional person up there. And uh, ego was attached to that. It, it is really interesting the fact that as you graduate from being 
uh, facilitate or move on through your journey, you're actually like the control, if we were mapping the control, like it, it just, it would go the other way. Absolutely. So I want to talk about, you know, it's a topic that we were discussing in the pre-show chat and it's very related <laughs> to this idea of being able to name it, label it. And you were talking about this idea of working in public or co-creating. And so, you know, if we're naming things and just ex- being transparent and vulnerable in that space, you know, that's what creates the, it opens the door for folks. And I think to your point, doing, working in public in any way, that transparency, that door opening is what, what invites real collaboration. Yeah. And I think, I mean, I've, I've heard the name, I think, I think I first heard Pat Flynn talk about working in public and I was reflecting on an experience when I was working internally for a big corporate mining company. I was in a learning and development role and we had a parent company. Um, and often we do things like we thought we'd take an initiative, like we'd design the leadership program, then we would have it finalized and send it, shoot it up to the parent company and say, hey, here's what we created. This is great. We should roll it out across all businesses. And they were really taken aback by that. So rather than being overjoyed that we'd done all the work for them, what we had done was sort of working in private where we just did everything. We thought it was the right thing, had it perfect mm-hmm. before presenting it. And we didn't get buy-in from them at all. <laughs> in fact, they were kind of pissed off that we did that. <laughs> so then I thought, all right, okay, so screwing away working in secret is not a good thing. Um, in, in certain contexts it is, but in the context that I work in and which is all about, and you Douglas, uh, co-creation group collaboration. Now I'm just trying to get more comfortable in sharing early editions and versions of things as I work on them with a group to get feedback. And I, I just find it the most amazing way to do things. Like it's, it's how I wrote my book. It's hard to do though, because you're sharing something that's half, half baked and that's really uncomfortable. Yes. So tell me about how you approached your book using this kind of mentality. Yeah, well, I got the idea from Rob Fitzpatrick, who wrote the workshop Survival Guide, and he wrote, also wrote a book called Write Useful Books. And he said, basically, I mean, so I was speaking at a conference in California on February 25th this year. On the 1st of January, I thought, I can't go to California. I can't fly all the way to California from Australia and not have a book. <laughs> so within 52 days, I got version one done. Um, basically, I mean, I've, I've had similar to you, I've had like 200 interviews on my first time facilitator podcast and just accumulated all this knowledge. So I thought to get this done, that was easy, but then I threw it out for feedback. So the version one of the book, I handed out at the conference with a very big disclaimer and a QR code, click here to give feedback. Like you're a part of an early edition and it was great. So for two things, one, it validated the idea. Um, I actually had someone come up to me and say, oh my gosh, I'm actually running a two hour workshop in two weeks. Like, okay, this is actually, this is the book. I'm solving a problem. But also the feedback was so interesting and fantastic. But I kind of, before even jumping onto the platform to review it, I really had to put myself in a state where I'm like, okay, Leanne, whatever you're reading here is, it's not feedback on you. It's feedback on this idea and the concept. Uh, So take that. So I'm sure with all the feedback you've got, that some of that feedback was surprising to you. So when you think about all the surprising feedback that you got, what comes to mind? Yeah, I think one of the, well, one of the core elements of the book originally was creating a, um, it was when you run a workshop, like create a framework around your content. And I'd feedback that that's kind of the next level. It's, it's, it's too hard for that level. So it, it was good because it kind of reminded me of who the reader was. <laughs> Another bit of feedback was Leanne, you use way too many metaphors. There's too many mixed metaphors in this book. And I thought metaphors were a good thing. Like I intentionally put lots of metaphors in there. Uh, the third thing was I thought I was writing in a really short, punchy way. It's a short book, but it wasn't punchy enough. And I think in one of the chapters, someone said, I think chapter five, they like, 
it took them maybe three pages in to get to the core message and it was kind of brutal that like you don't need all this but thank goodness that's been washed out before it goes into the final version i love that i love this process and interestingly enough it's how i wrote my book beyond the prototype we didn't use that process with magical meetings because i had a publisher who was giving me like plenty of feedback (laughs) (laughs) and but it was really fun to write in that way and i think you're expressing some uh getting over a bit of fear or uncertainty around it and I think I personally was lucky that I kind of came up through this world of um, software development where we were constantly like doing reviews and talking about things and trying things out and seeing if they would work. And so I was very used to working in that way, right? It's it's interesting you pull that up. I definitely see that software tech. I mean, we can see ChatGPT now on its fourth or fifth iteration, right? Just putting it out to the world as an early edition, getting feedback to improve the model. But in a lot of organizations, this is a really new concept. They don't even think about sharing what's going on behind the scenes or what they're working on. It's all hidden behind closed doors. And there's a real fear of, of being judged, I feel. Yeah. And also, another thing I see, even companies that are used to doing it, they're used to doing it in certain contexts, in certain departments. And so you look at a company that does a lot of prototyping on their design team, they might not be doing prototyping in their meetings, where it's Mm -hmm. like, you know, we could come and build a thing together and experiment with it. There's a lot of opportunity there. Yeah. I mean, it's like, I mean, how many companies have innovation in their corporate values yet? It's like, oh, we only innovate on product or service. We don't innovate in how we work or Mm. what, you know what I mean? It's like, it's not really a core value. It's just only for a certain amount of people or departments, but it's it's a core value. How are you living that through the business? Like every way, like where's your innovative parking or where's your innovative ride sharing to work or whatever it is, right? Love that. Yeah, that's a cool idea. So often when we're talking with facilitators that are working as full-time facilitators or contractors or freelancers, or maybe they have a small professional services agency, they think about that client relationship. But that's another lens that, um, similar to the prototypes, that we don't necessarily see with everyone who's facilitating inside of companies. It's something that we, you and I were talking about, this kind of thinking about the peer-to-peer relationship that really needs mm. to exist for the best work to be done in the facilitation context, really any collaboration context. How have you seen that show up in this kind of facilitator-client relationship when it comes to in-house, like in, in-house mm. facilitators? Well, I think there's, a, I mean, one thing, there's a brand about L&D, I still hasn't it really been dismissed, I don't think. I think maybe some people have, have worked on their brand, but it's really around L&D just being the order takers. So mm-hmm. the the operational leaders will, will, will say, this is what we need. We need more of a focus on safety, right? Then they'll go to L&D and go create a safety program. We need it. And they'll give them the detail of it, right? So just go, it needs to be 90 days and we need to make it virtual. So that is like a parent child. You're just throwing them the instructions and please create this. Whereas the peer-to-peer would be safety program, let's work shoulder to shoulder and, and really figure out, do some interviews, you know, what is actually required, what, what are the observed behaviours we need to change and things like that. Um, and I don't know if, it, I'm not too sure if it's set up in the structure as well. It's really quite funny, Douglas. One of my, when we're talking about the business of facilitation, I had um, Alan Weiss on my podcast who I now got as a business coach because he just, basically every two seconds was just a value drop. Something that he said, I'm, I can't believe I'm sharing it here, but it relates to this theme of the brand of learning and development. He said to me, Leanne, do you know what HR stands for? 
Have you heard this, Douglas, what he thinks it stands for? Mm-mm. He said, um, hardly relevant. <laughs> and I was like, what? What do you mean by that? And he goes, they have no budget. They have no decision power, right? And so the, this is what's going on. And and you do mention HR. They've tried to rebrand to different, um, you know, people and capability, talent and development, but the, it's still the legacy of that continues. And it's, it's sad because I've come from that world. Um, and even in my own marketing externally, I've really had to sh- shift the perception of not being just a, just a facilitator. We can talk about that word a bit later on or in learning and development, more about being a strategic advisor. I think the language we use around the description of the service needs to change. Um, but also the way of thinking around the best way to approach something also needs to change because training, um, everything that we thought you, was working, they, they, there's so much in terms of value and new things that we can be bringing out and being more responsive to what the organization actually needs. Yeah, it really matters. And I, I think what he's hitting on is this notion that HR is a cost center, right? They're not a value generating entity in the organization. And that I think that perception of HR is is unfortunately one that permeates a lot of organizations, right? So they don't tend to get the kind of investment that sales gets, for instance, yeah. right? Or, or even product development, because they look at product as, well, if we invest in product organization, they're going to create more innovation, which will create more value, and we can sell more of that value, right? Mm-hmm. That's, the, that's ultimately what they're looking at in a capitalist kind of equation. Yeah, and I think it's, it's a good consideration. And so in terms of if you, if the L and D departments wanting to build their brand, it's like, okay, what's that dotted line between what you did and the the return on investment and the performance? And I think the the measures aren't that good. Uh, definitely suggest uh, a link to Kevin Yates's work. He he calls himself the mm. L and D detective. Nice. I don't know if you know. He, yeah, so he talks about measurement. I think that's crucial if we're looking at building a peer to peer relationship, whether it's internal or external. How are you communicating the value? In terms of business results and performance, not just oh we improved the engagement scores. No one cares yeah, around, about to that. To what no end, right? Cares or, yeah, yeah. And you know, you look at companies that are adopting OKRs or other kinds of um, strategy rollout mechanisms, and anytime that work can be aligned with that, it can be a really powerful way to, you know, to ensure that the measurement is aligning with the objectives that have been set forth that are most important. That's it. Yeah, it's just getting that alignment and making sure that you can demonstrate uh, that value. Yeah, you know, another thing I was thinking about was how often there's no rubric or success criteria defined for a lot of this work, right? And so it's not only measuring, you can't really measure what you haven't decided how you're going to measure. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? That's right. Yeah, yeah. So try to write a proposal. I mean, when you're an external, but I mean, this is, I kind of wish I had external consulting experience before I moved internal as well. I mean, they're both just very parallel skills if, in terms of how do you, how do you measure the, the difference between your intervention, your series of workshops, uh, the coaching work that you're doing? What's the measurable objective out of that? Mm. And, and, but then the good thing about that is then, then you've got to ask, well, will a workshop help get you there? Maybe there needs to be, maybe a leader needs to change roles. Maybe that there's more. A workshop is part of the solution. I think where L&D can kind of fail and, some, and where I failed in my first few years is that because I'm a workshop facilitator, my prescription was a workshop. I wasn't thinking more broadly. So that's what's really shifted for me in terms of presently, Anne, is actually thinking, okay, the workshop is part, might, might be part of the solution, but it's not everything that this client requires to get the result they're after. Yeah, that's an important distinction. And I think that really 
interesting to hear this journey. What do you what do you think was the moment that uh, clicked for you that not everything's a workshop and I need to think more holistically? Uh, it was honestly working with Alan Weiss. <laughs> so, because so so he he basically disrupted the podcast. Like everyone was went nuts over this interview. I I was I my it was a watershed moment for me. The whole time I'd gone on my own solo, I was marketing myself as a facilitator, as a person person that run workshops. When people contacted me, they got a workshop. Then I sent Alan a few of my proposals for clients, and he just basically knocked them down. It was very brutal, and said, "Yeah, what are you doing?" <laughs> So I got my head checked in, um, in an, in a gloriously kind way to get violent feedback. <laughs> it was good. Yeah. yeah. So Amazing. we need people in our lives that do that for us. And I've had wonderful coaches. I think my first coach was very kind and lovely, but more of a cheerleader and there wasn't much growth, but with him, it's been brutal. It's been hard. I've had to really think about things and decide what to take on or not. Um, but one of the biggest influences in my career, I would say. Amazing. Yeah. A a solid coach can make a big difference. Yeah. So you also mentioned something else in the pre-show chat around this idea of how being a podcast host can be really informative and how you facilitate and the style that you bring into facilitation. I'm curious to hear a little bit more about that because it resonated with me. But before I start to share (laughs) my thoughts, I want to hear a little bit more about what that surfaces for you. Well, I, I, I mean, the fact that I, we're talking, I think it's fantastic. And if you're listening to this, you can I'm sure you can hear like the rhythm, cadence and difference between Douglas and I. And you can imagine a different type of workshop experience. Douglas, you're way more thoughtful and <laughs> intentional, I think, with what you say. I'm a just, will just run off uh, my mouth talks before I connect it to my brain. So it would have very different workshop experiences. And that's why I was just keen to riff with you on that. Um But I did start my podcast when I was a first-time facilitator working internally. My boss sent me to Canada. Uh, I had no idea how to run these workshops. And so I was looking for podcasts back then and couldn't find anything. So I started this podcast when I was working in a business. But what probably the best unintended side effect was as a result of hosting the show and having all these conversations where you're listening in, you're having to segue and transition, which for the first 50 episodes I was terrible at. Again, I had a script of questions. Um was that my, my growth as a facilitator was it just exploded as a result of being a podcast host. Have you, like, what have you discovered? Yeah, you know, I, it's fascinating to me the listening skills that it requires, just the intent listening, especially to your point early on, I showed up with a list of questions and I quickly realized how difficult it was to have a good podcast with this list of questions. So I wanted to shift it to be more conversational. And as soon as you do that, you have to really listen. And, you know, there's some guests like you, for example, where the conversation's natural. There's some guests where the conversation is not natural and you really have to work hard and listen really hard. I've thought as a facilitator, I'm a pretty good listener, really good at rapid synthesis. But once you're trying to capture a moment with someone and and really get a good recording and really make the conversation live. It's like facilitating one person, right? You, you can't just like <laughs> jump to someone else in the room and and, and have the beauty of the, the, the room intelligence erupt. It's like, no, you got to like really pull it out of that person. And so that intent listening and that, and also synthesizing and thinking about where am I going to nudge this so I get them talking? That's... <laughs> 
I um, love the way that you put that, facilitating one person. You're right. And I've had, definitely had those situations where it's been kind of disjointed and like we haven't really built up a drumbeat or a rhythm. And and the other point that you mentioned in terms of, oh, wow, this person said five different things. We could go in five different directions here. Which one do I take? Mm. Um, and often, actually, people have written to me saying, oh, how did you know I was going to ask that question? Like, cause, And it basically is just going into, I think, and again, like I said, if the first time I had that script, I wouldn't have gone to that question. But when I relinquished control, I just put myself in the scenes. Like, yeah, like you said to Douglas before the show, if we were just having a coffee, what would I actually naturally just ask that person? And I go with that with that one as opposed to having to be performative. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, I don't really like to interview or talk to my guests ahead of time unless I am not sure if it's going to be a good episode. You know, if I want to get a good read on, oh, who is this person? Is there going to be like, but if I have a an understanding or an intuition that it's going to be good, I just go with it because it's going to be so much better to have it be organic. Yeah, there's nothing worse when you've heard the story a second time. <laughs> <laughs> And had to feign interest, right? It's like in the, the birthday present oh. nobody wants. <laughs> yeah, that's it. So I wanted to talk a little bit about the book because that's exciting. We, t- we talked about the process by which you wrote the book. I think it'd be neat to talk about Spark for a little bit here and um, especially Keep because that's the big mm-hmm. innovation for you. But I think for listeners, it'd be helpful to hear what Spark is and then maybe we can dive into that that keep piece that's um, particularly special. Yeah. And I guess it depends on who, like, who. I think people will pick up different elements. So Spark is the framework that underpins the whole book, basically. It's, it's talking through how to set up your workshop, how to power it up and get people engaged immediately, um, how to structure your agenda with activities, the reflection piece to close off your workshop. So we all know this format, right? We all know it. This is the book that I would have loved six years ago. And then keep is the part um, first of all, I, I, I'm like, oh, keep, you know, do I just keep, do I keep this K in? I'm like, actually, this is really important. I think this is probably the geeky stuff that people don't talk about because it's not glamorous at all. It's like what happens after the workshop. And so one of my values is like working with clients is responsiveness and, and something, you know, speed is more important than content sometimes in the world that we're living in. And often uh, what I was really bad at was I'd finish a workshop I'd probably be tired. I might be traveling. And so when I got the resources that I promised in the workshop to them, it would be like a week later, which is not good enough. So what I do ahead of time is I tend to know what resources I recommend. There's like a top 10 list, like my favorite leadership books. I've got a Spotify playlist of my favorite leadership podcast episodes that I've curated on particular themes. So if we're talking about psychological safety, I've got like a podcast playlist for that. And then I've got this Notion uh, template set up with all my resources. So post-workshop, I just duplicate it, edit things around, throw in some photos or quotes from the day and get that out to the client very quickly, like within six hours of the workshop being done. They don't have that cognitive overload and the weight of having to do that as well. Like the the workshop is over. Um, The other part of Keep, which I'll just quickly share is what do we do with our, like, do we ever reflect on our workshops, how activities worked what could have been tweaked, the variations of that. So I'll actually schedule time in my calendar post-workshop. to. I print out my run sheets. I know that's very old school. Like I've tried to use the iPad, but I actually like having paper there that I can quickly jot, thing, jot notes down on. And I've actually just got a display folder here with every single run sheet I've run for workshops and I'll annotate over the top very quickly. So when I go to design again, I can just flick through my previous run sheets and, and pick those things out that worked. So, I mean, 
yeah, just my process of doing things faster, but also not losing the learnings that I'm getting from every session. It reminds me of the, it's like the operations of being a facilitator and really yeah. embracing the fact that how do we make this efficient, repeatable, um, make it easier? Yeah, because I think there's a tendency that even if you're running the same session, we all have this tendency to just to, well, I need to change it up because even if it's a completely new group, they've never seen it before, like to keep it fresh for ourselves. But one thing I also remind myself of is that every workshop is a once in a lifetime experience. Like it's never going to be the same. <laughs> so, <Yep. laughs> so that helps get me through. Do you have a process? Oh, absolutely. You know, I was a CTO for many years and software developer, so I'm a procedural thinker and I have tons of process, including lots of Zap and Zapier, if you know what that is. And, yeah. And in fact, we, whenever we define a repeatable type of workshop that we like to run, we will create a configuration file for that workshop that will include a mural or Miro and a slide deck and all the, it'll point to the master versions for that particular type. So when I say I want to do that again, it just duplicates it all and puts it all in the right places. And then you're, I'm off to the races. And then if it's anything custom, we just choose the custom option, which also is a set of all those things, but it's more of a blank slate or it has all the building blocks that we need. Because then whatever we're doing for that custom might turn into one that we do again sometime. And so the system's kind of set up to where we can just kind of capture those things. So that's like an example. Like we get pretty nerdy on it. <laughs> I love, oh, great. I mean, I love, I really love hearing how you actually do this and how I've had um, even people, yeah, just using Google Slides and having that, you know, the master one there and then editing. And I love hearing this stuff because it really does make a difference in terms of your, the, the ability to design fast is, is actually quite important. Like if you want to take on new work, if, you know, in my first few years building this business, I was saying yes to every type of workshop, right? So I had to build rapidly. Otherwise I wouldn't be able to do it. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, you know, we're kind of coming up on time. I want to think about where do you see the future going? You know, mm -hmm. everyone's, of course, talking about AI these days. And it seems, especially when you're talking about systems and, and designing fast, how much is AI showing up in your systems and fast designing these days? Yeah, so even I talk about this in the book, something I think is important to get, I talk about getting people to your actual workshops because often people sign up and they don't come along. Uh, so one thing I love using AI, I mean, this is, I know chat GPT isn't all of AI, <laughs> um, but even just getting like, so brainstorming prompts on what am I going to call this workshop? Mm. Um, yeah. I've used it in the book. I talk about um, if you want to get a case study, imagine you're a procurement manager, you're working for this company, you've got an issue with time. Can you write me a case study and can you give me five or 10 different questions I could ask to reflect on that? And I don't take them verbatim, but it's a good, you know, I'll, then I'll work with the client and go, is this something relevant? So we're not working off a blank slate. I think that's the power of it. It's you, There's no more blank slates. There's no more blank curses. Fill it up. This is a part of the work in public thing. Share it. How can you improve it? And then take it to the workshop. Yeah, I often refer to thinking of it as another teammate. And I think it'll show up more and more like that, you know, the more mm -hmm. sophisticated it gets. And so not only are we using the tools, but really we're collaborating with them. It's, yeah, we're facilitating with it. And I, that, yes. honestly, I'm, I'm back to, I think us facilitators are like the best users of like, as in terms of prompt, we are maybe prompt engineers. Maybe we've been doing it our whole lives. We're just now, <laughs> we've been, we're prompting groups, right? In, and so the questions that I've asked, I had someone actually ask me, they go, how did you do that? And I sent them my 50 page Google doc of the transcript. I'm like, wow, I wouldn't have even thought of those questions. And I think, oh, maybe facilitation is, is again, 
It's just the most handiest skill to have. Yeah, well, it's certainly a, um, you get good at asking questions for sure. Mm. You know, it's interesting. I made a comment earlier when you were talking about the systems and I was thinking to myself, uh, I just said, how do we make it easier to facilitate? And then in that split second, I remember how facilitation's Latin root is facile, which is to make easy. And so literally, if keep is about making it easy for us to facilitate, it means that's us facilitating ourselves. Oh, that's very meta. It is. I often find that some of like, we don't really invest that, that time and energy and effort into our own systems. Like we'll give it everything away for the client and do whatever they want. Back to that whole parent, adult, child thing. But after a workshop, you know, we're usually tired. We haven't really prepped enough. And I think the systems, I think you're right. It's a really good observation, Douglas, that we're making it easy, easier for ourselves. Um, I don't want to start a new thread here, but because I was, you know, when I was asking and, and giving out fees and I'm thinking maybe this fee's a bit too much, but they've accepted, I've got to make it hard for myself. That was a weird mindset mm. thing I had that sometimes still crops up. But It's interesting. Earlier we were talking about when folks are just getting started, one of the challenges is the fear of going off the rails. And so like over-program, putting too much in there because it's not going to be enough or like detailing it so finely that it's just like gives you no freedom to move. Mm -hmm. um, also, the, what you just described is another big Achilles heel I've seen folks suffer from, which is like this strong drive for perfection where they over-deliver. And mm -hmm. I think it's completely unnecessary and oftentimes can be a disservice to the recipient of the workshop, even if it's not obvious. Because it's like, how much is really necessary? Yeah. <clears throat> and I had this constant need to, I, I talk about the importance of adding contrast in your workshops, mm. but sometimes there's like too much contrast you can add. And basically your group are just on a, a roller coaster and you're just trying to keep their attention the whole time at a really yeah. high level. That was one of the traps I fell into. Yeah. And I still have to like be like, all right, Leanne, let's like take, take it out. Like, let that, them have that space. Yeah. And it's not only, like, too much content. Sometimes it can be just too much, like, depth. Mm. You know? Like, how deep and thoughtful and nuanced does the prompt need to be? <laughs> like, does it, does it, does it kind of, did you just spend, like, two days crafting this thing that's got so much intellectual depth to it that is lost on everyone? Then, you know, it's... Is there any value? And did someone get confused because of the nuance? Is the nuance confusing anyone? You know, it's like, I think yeah. that stuff's like worth the calibrating is so important, I guess, is the point I was trying to make. I, I think calibration is the word, I think, because often when you're thinking about the perfectionist trait, that's about you as, you know, you putting on the show versus in service of the group. And there's the distinction. Yeah. And it comes back to the metrics that we we're talking about with, yeah. you know, are, are we measuring ourselves do we even know how we were measuring ourselves or the out not only ourselves but the outcomes of the session like, how's the business benefiting how's the team benefiting like ultimately why are we doing this why yeah yeah <laughs> I like that you linked it back well done so if we keep doing this work like when you think about the future and what all this creates for us in the world what are the dreams that are made possible in your mind uh look the dreams are, I think, what we're doing is extremely important work given where we're headed as a society in terms of like the screen time and everything else. So I think what we're crafting is just incredibly meaningful experiences. One of my missions, <clears throat> I should put a number against this, but it's, it's to stamp out boring workshops around the world forever. Because I think if you do have the opportunity to bring teams together or people together, that's kind of sacred time. So how do you get 
and this isn't about getting the biggest ROI, but how do you make it more meaningful and, you know, a, a once in a life, a, a lifetime opportunity for them? So I think what's interesting now, even in Australia, where we had COVID in my state didn't hit so hard, but there's still like, there's no hybrid, there's no virtual, it's back to all in-person sessions, which is quite interesting. It's kind of swung the other way, even though we've had all this, this technology improvement and know that virtual workshops can work to a degree. So I think it's just that, you know, we hold a really important place in society. I think it's really important that we continue building the perception of what we can do and how it can benefit society um, and the world. I couldn't have said that better. And as we come to a close, I want to leave you with an opportunity to leave our listeners with a final thought. I think I'm going to play on, uh, in The Coaching Habit, Michael Bungay Senior talks about being a lazy leader. And I think as facilitators, why don't we strive to be a bit lazier in the way that we design our workshops using systems, like backing it up, not saying doing a poor job, doing a great job, but just stepping back a bit, letting the group um, fill that space. So I guess that's my probably call links into everything we spoke about, the work in public stuff as well, is like be a bit lazy. I don't have to have all the answers or a final solution. Ah, yes, the lazy facilitator. I'm a big fan. Excellent, Leanne. Great words. It was a pleasure chatting with you today, and I look forward to another chat soon. Thanks for joining me for another episode of Control the Room. Don't forget to subscribe to receive updates when new episodes are released. If you want to know more, head over to our blog where I post weekly articles and resources about facilitation, team dynamics, and collaboration. VoltageControl.com.